Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles, and we are in Genesis 15 this morning. And if you are using the blue Bible in front of you, that can be found on page 12. So we are in Genesis 15, and I'm going to be reading the whole chapter. I'm sorry to disappoint you, there are not as many fun names this week. So, I know some of you really enjoyed that. Genesis 15. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we walk through this section of Genesis, as I alluded to, we've been focusing on faith. It's coming up week after week after week. It's faith. We're talking about what does it look like to trust God and to live in light of that trust. But underneath all that we've been learning about faith, there's really one important question that holds the whole key to the life of faith. 
It's the one thing that we need to know more than anything else if we're going to walk by faith. It's a question that I think is so simple that often we just forget to even ask it. The question is, can God be trusted? He calls us to trust him, to live a life by faith. But underneath that, what we need to do before we do any of that, we need to resolve and settle is, can God be trusted? Is he worthy of our trust and our confidence? This is the starting point for the life of faith. As we just sang about, if we're going to come to Jesus and rest in him, we have to know and believe that he can be trusted. And the same is true for Abram. If he's going to live a life of faith, he needs to settle it and resolve it that God can be trusted. And we're going to see him wrestle with that question today. See, what we've seen so far is Abram is a guy who's orienting his whole life around God and his promises. He's left everything to follow this God on the basis of these incredible promises that God has made to him. God has promised to bless him, to make him a great nation, to bless those who bless him and to curse those who dishonor him. And so far, through several chapters, we've been seeing a lot of that play out, right? God has continually blessed Abram. He's caused Abram to become strong enough to defeat a regional superpower last week. He's become wealthy enough to have to separate from his kinsmen lot because they just had too much stuff. He's given Abram a name so great that kings are coming out to him to be his friend. When Pharaoh took his wife and dishonored him, he paid for it. When the eastern kings took Lot and dishonored him, they suffered for it. But when Abram's friends, the Amorites, when they helped him in battle, when they blessed him in that way, guess what? They shared in the spoils of victory. So in lots of ways, things are going really, really well. They're unfolding just like Abram anticipated. But underneath all that, there are two main foundational promises that have not come to fruition yet. Do you remember the two main things God promised Abram, even back in chapter 12? Land and offspring. The rest of the promises hinged on those two things, land and offspring. And aren't those the two very things that we've seen threatened over and over already? The promise of offspring was threatened when Sarai was put in Pharaoh's harem. Then land was threatened when Lot claimed the land that appeared to be the better one. Then last week, all the promises were threatened when the king of Sodom offered Abram a shortcut to blessing that relied more on power and compromises with the enemy than on patience and trusting God to bring it about. But in all these, God helped Abram and protected his promises. And yet, here's Abram in chapter 15, looking around at his life, and he can't help but notice life doesn't look the way that he thought it would by this point. That there are some things that he expected to be true by now that simply aren't. So the question that Abram needs to settle in his heart in our passage, and that you and I need to settle in our hearts this morning is, can God be trusted? His promises are incredible. But is he worthy of our trust? 
And the structure of chapter 15 picks up on this question as it deals with the two main promises to Abram. So let me show you the structure just so you can kind of see how this is laid out. So you've got two main parts. The first part, verses 1 to 6, deals with the promise of offspring. Right? We're going to see that. The second part deals with the promise of land. But they kind of mirror each other in that they follow the same three-step pattern. First, God reveals, says, here's who I am, and he makes a promise. But then Abram raises a question. And then God reveals more and confirms the promise. It happens for offspring, and then it happens for land. So that's not our, that's just so you can see the structure. Our outline for how we're going to go through it is much more simple. We're going to look at those two sections, but we're going to see how God is a trustworthy God. And we're going to see it in two main ways. By him counting righteous by faith in verses 1 to 6. And by him confirming promises by covenant in 7 to 21. So that's our outline. But hopefully the structure gives you a little sense of this is not just a random story. There's, there's an intentional outline happening here. Okay, so let's jump in and let's look at the first section in verses 1 to 6. The first thing we have is God's word to Abram. Look at verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay, now notice those first three words. After these things. What things? Well, the things that we talked about last week up in chapter 14. After the battle with these kings. And after Abram turns down the offer from the king of Sodom. So we don't know how much longer this is, but we know that that's the backdrop that we are supposed to have in, in our minds as we hear God's word to Abram. It says, after these things, it's linking it, saying, hey, this is still fresh. This is still on Abram's mind. And with those things on his mind, God speaks to Abram. And what is the first thing out of his mouth? The first thing God says to Abram is, fear not. Fear not, Abram. Now we should ask the question, well, why, why would God lead with that? Why might Abram be afraid here? I mean, he just, after all, he just had a really good thing happen to him. Seems like things are cruising along. Why would he say, fear not, Abram? Well, it could be a couple different things, right? It could be that he's thinking about the powerful kings that he just defeated and Abram's afraid now that, you know what? They, some of them got away. So what if they regroup and go and get some more people and they come back even stronger and now they're mad and they want revenge? Am I going to be strong enough to defeat them again? One possibility. Or it could be Abram's wrestling and having second thoughts and wondering, did I blow it? By not taking that deal? That deal to get all the stuff the king of Sodom offered him as a reward? Is he wondering, man, will I ever have a shot at a reward like that again? So Abram's got these fears. And into these fears, God speaks and tells him, don't be afraid. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He says, let me tell you why, Abram. Here's why you don't need to be afraid. First, because I am your shield. So as Abram's potentially contemplating, what if those kings come back? Or what if it's not them? What if there's another power that rises? How, I had one victory. How many will I be able to do? God, I don't know if I'm strong enough. Do I have enough men? And he says, Abram, 
I am your shield. I am your protection, Abram. What keeps you safe is not your strength or your resources or your plan or your wisdom. It's me. When you consider all the things that might threaten you, all the things that might come against you, Abram, I don't want you to weigh them against your ability to stand against them. I want you to take every threat, every potential harmful thing that's going to come against you, and I want you to weigh it against me, my ability. I, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, am your shield. So do not fear. But then he goes on. As if that weren't enough to to assuage the fears of Abram. He says, it's not just that God will protect Abram from harm. He'll also provide him with good. He says, do not fear, Abram. You're worried about a reward? Oh, your reward shall be very great. It says, so as he's considering all that he said no to. I mean, you ever do that? Walk away from something wondering and like kind of start kicking yourself thinking, oh, should I have done that? Maybe I, maybe I, should, have, I should have taken that, I, that deal. So Abram's weighing all the things that he just said no to. And God speaks to him and says, don't be afraid that you're missing out, Abram. What you'll gain from me is far greater than anything you gave up. You will have a reward and it will be very great. So Abram hears this. And I I have to imagine that this is a balm to his soul. He's encouraged, he's happy, and yet he's got something on his mind, right? He's seen God do so much in his life already, but he can't shake the fact that there's one thing he's still waiting on. It's the one thing that he wants more than all the riches, all the victories, and everything else. And with each passing day, it becomes more and more likely that that promise won't be fulfilled. And so Abram brings his concern to God in verse 2. He says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. See, Abram, he's just cutting right to it here. Because this is the linchpin promise, right? If Abram's going to be a great nation... And if his offspring will inherit the land, then guess what he needs? An offspring. He needs a son to be his heir. And as Abram looks around and he tries to make sense of it, the only way that this plays out in his mind is he says, well, I guess, I, I guess it's going to be my servant. I mean, that's not what I thought God meant, but as I'm trying to put the pieces of what I see into place, I, Lord, is that what you're doing? Now, it's important to note that this isn't unbelief on Abram's part. Throughout the Bible, there are lots of times that when people ask questions of God in unbelief, he usually responds fairly sharply to correct them. Think of John the Baptist's dad, right? Saying, well, how will this possibly be? And he says, okay, you're not talking for a while, right? He usually corrects them, but God doesn't do that here. Because Abram's question isn't doubt, it's confusion. It's, it's almost a form of lament. He's saying, God, I know what you promised. And I believe you. But right now, there is a gap between your promise and my reality. And I'm just not sure what to do with it. 
I, I, I don't understand. He's, he's basically saying, God, help me. Like, I believe. Help my unbelief. What do I do with that gap between promise and reality? And when Abram brings his pain and his questions and confusion to God in faith, notice God doesn't rebuke him. Do you see that? Instead, what does he do? He confirms his promises by his word. Look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. No, Abram, (laughs) this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God's so patient with Abram here. He says, no, 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 no. Listen, Abram, your attempt to make sense of your situation, your attempt to dilute down the promise till it seems like something that's maybe a little more doable, a little more realistic to you, is is not what's going to happen. That's not what I promised. That's not what I meant. It's not going to be your servant. It's going to be your own son, literally a son from your body. At this point, Abram's probably reeling. But then God goes even further. Verse five. Then he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So God's telling Abram once again, Abram, my promise to you hasn't changed. I know you think it's on a clock and you're watching the days tick by and watching your body get older and your wife's body get older and seeming like nothing's, we're not moving any closer. You're probably thinking, okay, maybe we need to alter the promise. Maybe we need to like dumb it down to fit our current context. He says, no, my promise hasn't changed. You will have offspring. And not only will you have offspring, Abram, they're gonna be more than you can possibly count. I want you to imagine that scene. Because I want you to think back to when we first met Abram. Remember who this guy is. He's a former moon worshiper. And here you've got Abram, the former moon worshiper, back out under the night skies. But now, the God who created and possessed the heavens and the earth, and all that Abram knew, all those stars that Abram knew so well from probably years of studying and looking and speculating on what this star meant and why that's there. God says, those, those are a picture of your future generations. To Abram, this would have been a staggering promise. In fact, I bet it, was, it seems so hard to fathom. I mean, so humanly impossible. This wasn't just like, wow, that'd be really neat. Like, I could promise one of you in here that one day you'd be a millionaire. And you think that's probably very unlikely. But it's possible. All it would take is the right few breaks. And anyone in here, that could happen to you. But this is something that like defied probability and even possibility. Like, there's no way this could happen on a human level. It's so far beyond what Abram could reasonably expect. And so right then, we come up against a situation where we're left wondering, what would Abram do with that? How would he respond to such an audacious promise? Verse 6. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right here, tucked in the middle of our little story about Abram, This is one of the most important theological statements in your Bible. Here we are told how it is that a person can be right with God. Two words are really key here. First, that word believed. The word there is related to words that convey a sense of reliability, 
of finding something dependable, steadfast. To believe means that you find it something absolutely trustworthy and certain and sure. And so when it says Abram believed, it's saying that's how Abram considered God. That he was absolutely and completely able to be trusted, completely reliable. Whatever God said, he would do. In other words, Abram put his full weight on God and was confident that God would hold him up. He rested fully on God and his promises. And when he did, when Abram believed, it says God counted it to him as righteousness. This is incredible. Don't let familiarity dull the incredible reality that this is. One minute, Abram doesn't have righteousness. Then the next he does. And how did he get it? What made Abram acceptable in God's sight? Was it a list of accomplishments he had done? Was it some great act of obedience? What is it that he did? The answer is nothing. It wasn't about what he'd done. It's he simply trusted in the promises of God. That's it. It was on the basis of faith and faith alone that God declared Abram righteous. And guess what? That's what he does for us. I love how one pastor, Kevin DeYoung, describes this scene. He says, God makes promises. And insofar as we trust in those promises, God looks at you and says, that's enough. That's just the sort of person I'm looking for. That's just the sort of life and heart I'm looking for. Not what you've done, not what you've accomplished, but what you have received upon whom you rest. He says, God made all these great promises to Abram and his part, as it were, was simply to say, yes. Friends, this is the great news of the gospel. Our God counts us righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of who we've believed. He's not looking at our heart's resumes, but in what our heart rests. And just like with Abram, God has made great promises to us in Christ. Promises of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life, of never-ending joy, of peace with God. And our part is simply to trust those promises. Not earn them, not deserve them, just trust them, believe them, rest in them. The Apostle Paul, man, he loved this verse in Genesis. He quotes it multiple times in the New Testament. One of those places I want, I want you to look at with me is Romans 4. So flip in your Bibles to Romans 4 real quick. Like I said, there's several places Paul cites Genesis 15, 6, but I love what he does here to help drive home these points in Romans 4. So in Romans 4, listen to what he says in verse 3. It says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There it is. There's our quote. Then he goes on and says, Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what point is Paul 
driving at here. He's saying that when it comes to the gospel, God uses a different equation altogether. When you work a job, your paycheck, your wages are credited to you because that's what you earned. It's not a gift, he says. Like, you did work, therefore, you put it in the equation, you did this much work, therefore you get this much wages. But when it comes to a right standing with God, he says, what's credited to your account as righteousness is not all the godly doing you've done, but your belief in the God who justifies, declares righteous, the ungodly. He's saying that's what Abram did here. So we might say, okay, I get it. So he had faith. But what, what are you talking about? What does that kind of faith look like? What kind of faith gets credited as righteousness? And you know, a lot of people in our world say, I have faith. What kind of faith gets credited as righteousness? Well, Paul's glad you asked. Because he goes on to that down in Romans 4, verse 20. Listen to him describe Abram. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Did you hear that? Abram was fully convinced that God was able to keep his promises. That's the bedrock. That's, you want to know what kind of faith did he have? He said, God made a promise. I believe it. Fully convinced. And it says, that's why. That's why his faith was counted as righteousness. And guess what? The same is true for you and I today. Because listen to what Paul says right after that. He says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it, righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul's saying, how was Abram counted righteous with God? By believing God and his promises. How were you and I counted right with God? By believing God and his promises. God's people always have been and always will be saved by faith alone in the promises of God. We must believe promises. I want to I push on that for one second because that's part of what makes faith particular. It's faith in promises. It's not just faith in the abstract that I believe that there is a God somewhere. The demons believe there's a God, but they're not saved. But there are promises that God's made. And so to have this kind of faith that gets credit as righteousness, guess what the first thing you need to know is, what did God promise? And so when we read our Bibles and we see the glorious promises that he's offered to us in Jesus, the, things, the promises of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of pardon of sin, of eternal life, he says when you hear those and you believe those, that's faith that gets credited as righteousness. So one question for all of us in the room this morning is, are you trusting promises? Not just do you have a vague, positive bent towards God. You're not anti-God. You think he's real and you think in general he's good. But do you know and believe the promises he's made to you? Are you resting in them? 
Can you say our only hope of righteousness is not in me, but in Christ alone? That's where Abram was, and that's where I pray we would be this morning. Okay, so that, that's our first section, our first six verses. And notice in those first six verses, did you catch it? It focused entirely on God's promise of offspring. He doesn't talk about land, he talks about offspring. Now in verse 7, you get the shift from offspring to land. Look at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay, so remember that structure I showed you. We're starting off the exact same way. God announces who he is for Abram. First time he said, Abram, I am your shield. This time, Abram, I'm the one who brought you out from Ur to give you this land. I called you. I rescued you out of the darkness you were living in, and I'm going to give you this land. But just like last time, Abram has a question. Verse 8. But he said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So again, I don't think Abram is expressing unbelief here. I mean, this is two verses after Abram's just been counted righteous by faith. So I don't think he suddenly was counted righteous by faith and a minute later is stumbling through unbelief. I think Abram's grasping for something tangible to put underneath his faith, a foundation. He's saying, God, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help me know, how will I know that the land is mine? That's what he asks. And I want you to keep that word in mind. He says, how will I know that the land is mine? And again, God doesn't rebuke him. Instead, in his grace, God says, it's a good question, Abram. I'm going to give you something that will help you know that my promises will come true. What God does is he confirms his promises with a covenant. Now, a covenant was a solemn commitment and oath. It's something that was absolutely binding. You did not break covenants. It was more than just a, a handshake deal. This was a, this was a big commitment. And it's more than a business deal. This, this involved a relationship. It was built on relationship, and it kind of took a relationship to the next level in terms of it formalized it. It said there's an agreement in place here that binds how you and I will relate to each other. The only way we really do it nowadays is, think, is in marriage, right? It doesn't create necessarily a brand new relationship, hopefully. Hopefully the bride and the groom know each other before that moment. They have a relationship. They say, we want to spend the rest of our lives together, and so they make a covenant together saying, this is what our relationship, relationship will look like. These are the terms, the vows that we're going to make. So here we have God initiating a covenant with Abram. He's binding himself to Abram in this unbreakable relationship. He's giving him something solid to build his faith upon. He's confirming his promises by covenant. God's basically telling him, here's how you'll know, Abram. You, you want something more tangible, more something you can look at and say, ah, that's how I know. He says, okay, I'm going to give you a covenant. Now, when these covenants were made, it was customary in the day to have the two parties who were making a covenant, they would kill an animal or animals, and they would divide it in two, and then they would walk together between the pieces to seal the deal. Well, that's kind of weird. We don't do that at any weddings I've been to. 
Um, But why would they do this? Well, the act of walking between the dead animal represented a self-imposed curse should either party not keep their side of the covenant. It was saying, if I break this covenant, if I don't keep my promise, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I suffer the curse of this covenant. May it fall on me just like these animals suffered the curse. Would it happen to me if I should not uphold the covenant? So that's what's going on here. In verses 9 to 11, God gives Abram instructions on how to get everything ready for that ceremony. He tells him to get these animals. He cuts them in half and lays them opposite each other. And as he does this, he, he creates this bloody pathway through the middle. I just, I think again, we just sanitize these images. There's a lot of dead animals here, right? There's a lot of blood. And so he's got this bloody pathway through the middle. Now this preparation seems like it took Abram all day. Did you catch the time markers here? Up in verse 5, remember God took Abram out and says, look at the stars. It's nighttime. Now in verse 12, well, the sun's going down again. How's that happen? Well, it must have taken him all day to get these animals ready. So there, after a full day of slaughtering animals, making preparations for the ceremony, Abram falls asleep. Now this doesn't seem to be just any old sleep. That phrase, a deep sleep, in verse 12, it's the same kind of sleep that came upon Adam in the Garden of Eden when God took his rib and created Eve. Now when that happened, when that deep sleep came, out of it, something new was created. A new relationship was formed. And the same thing's happening here with Abram in the midst of his deep sleep. Now notice it says that when this Deep sleep came, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now, this isn't just the darkness of night. This is something supernatural. This language for darkness and dread is usually found when the presence of God draws near. In fact, I want you to think about a couple other times covenants are inaugurated in the Bible. What's the scene like at Mount Sinai when God makes a covenant With Moses, darkness, deep darkness. What about at the cross when Jesus inaugurates the new covenant? Darkness covers the land. So when we see that dreadful darkness descending on the scene here, it tells us something solemn is about to take place. And sure enough, in verses 13 to 16, it does. God confirms his promises. Listen to what he tells Abram. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, now remember what Abram asked God. God, how will I know? Well, what does God tell him now? In the the context of making the covenant, he says, know for certain. In the Hebrew, it's actually a repeated no. It's saying, knowing, know this. 
is just saying, like, you need to really, really, really know this, Abram. This is how these things will happen. And the things that will happen, there's several really significant things. First, he gives Abram the bad news. He says, your offspring are going to be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. And they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. God is letting Abram know that before they can claim the inheritance, there will be trials. Sojourning and suffering will come before the fulfillment of the promises. And while no one ever wants to hear this news, think what a comfort this would have been to the Israelites as they suffered in Egypt, as they lived this out. As they experienced affliction, they could hold on to God's word and know that their suffering wasn't a threat to God's promises. They were experiencing suffering and they weren't saying, oh no, does this mean the promises are not valid? Does this mean they failed? Does this mean that God has abandoned his? And they say, no, 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 no. He told us this would happen. This was part of the plan. This would happen and then the inheritance. And God's people could take heart because their suffering wasn't the end of the story. Because after their suffering, God promised that he would bring judgment on their captors and they would not only go free, they leave with great possessions. In other words, yes, you're going to suffer and there's going to be affliction while you sojourn in a land that's not yours. But one day, God's going to say enough and he will bring judgment on those who have afflicted you. And not only is he going to set you free from the affliction you experience, on the backside of that suffering, there's going to be blessing. You're going to come out of that with reward that you can't imagine. And for Abram, he says, Abram, don't you worry. You're going to live to a good old age and die in peace. That word peace, this is actually the very first time in the Bible that word you probably have heard before, shalom, shows up. This full rich peace. It says even though Abram wouldn't experience the fulfillment of promises in his lifetime, he'd live and die in shalom, in peace. Why? Because he's resting in the confidence that God would surely do what he had promised. And don't miss verse 16. This is one we skip right over, but this is really important to understand what unfolds later in your Bibles. God promises that after four generations, or he says roughly 400 years, his people would come back to the promised land. Okay, but why that long, God? Well, he says, because the sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. And what this shows us here, by him saying this, this shows us both the patience and the justice of God. We see his justice because later when Israel does come back to the land and when they drive out all those nations at the end of our passage, it's not just aggression. It's not just greed. It's not just empire building. It's God bringing justice to the Amorites who had filled up their sin against him. And God patiently waited four centuries to act against them. Why? Because he was waiting until they deserved what they got. Friends, the conquest of the promised land was not Israel driving out a bunch of innocent people. We, 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 people try to personify it as that. It's like, oh, those poor Canaanites just driven from their home. This is telling us, no, this is not innocent people driven from homes. This was God using Israel to bring the justice of divine judgment against people who had stockpiled sin against him. And he doesn't wipe them out immediately. 
He waited and he waited for 400 years. He was patient. But they presumed on the riches of his kindness and patience. And instead of repenting, they stored up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. So, God makes all these promises about what's going to happen in the days to come. He tells them it's going to be hard, but then there's going to be salvation, and you're going to displace all your enemies. And then in verse 17, something incredible happens. Look there. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. Okay, now, what's the deal with a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch seems somewhat random well think about where else we'll see fire and smoke a little later in the bible in exodus god first appears to moses in a bush that's on fire later all of israel would encounter god's presence on mount sinai how is mount sinai described in exodus 19 it says the lord had descended on it in fire The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. In the wilderness, God leads his people by a pillar of fire and cloud. So in other words, what is Abram seeing when he sees the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch? He's seeing the presence of God himself. The holy, holy, holy God has come down to make a covenant with him. Which makes what happens next even more stunning. Because notice who does and does not walk through the animals. Abram doesn't go through. Only God does. God, in doing so, is taking on himself the full responsibility for this covenant to come to fruition. As he passes through the slain animals, God is saying, may this happen to me if these promises don't come to pass. If this covenant is broken, may the curses fall on me. I will make sure everything I've promised will happen. You have not just my promise, but my covenant. In other words, Abram, you can trust me. So in verse 18 we read, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. So this is the covenant that's made. And this covenant with Abram, this is going to be the bedrock underneath all the rest of what God's going to do in our Bibles. Like, this is not just a chapter that it's going to close and we'll move on to God doing other things. The unfolding of this covenant is what everything else flows out of the rest of your Bibles. Offspring for Abram and land for his people. And the covenant is what confirmed the promises of God and showed us without question that God will see his promises fulfilled or else bear the curse himself. Now what no one saw coming was that it was in order for these promises to be fulfilled that God himself would suffer the curse for us. Because while God has always been faithful to his promises, we've all failed to trust him. We've sinned against him and we failed to keep our end of the covenant. So we rightly deserve to have the curse fall on us. It should fall on us. As Paul writes in Galatians 3, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He says there's a curse on us because we did not uphold what we ought to. Therefore, if you and I had walked through the animals, we, it should rightly be us. It should happen to us. And yet in his great love and mercy, God sent Jesus to suffer the curse for us. He got what we deserved. Galatians 3 goes on and says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And it says, so that. Why did that happen? Why did Christ redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by hanging on a tree? It says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Well, how can this blessing of Abraham become ours? Paul tells us in Galatians. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Sound familiar? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He's saying, you saw what happened in Genesis? That's how you're made right with God. Jesus paid for every failing. Our debt was paid by Jesus' death. The curse we deserved fell on him in our place. He carried, he carried our heavy burden of sin and our weary load. And through faith in him alone, our sins are forgiven and we are counted as righteous. This is stunning, friends. But maybe you're like Abram this morning saying, oh, those promises are so good, so glorious. But God, how can we know? How do we know you can be trusted? The answer is the same. Because we have a covenant, a new covenant where the Holy One came down to us to confirm his promises. A new covenant where Jesus has taken full responsibility on himself to see the promises fulfilled. A covenant where he alone has walked the bloody path to call down the curse on himself to ensure that all that is promised will happen. This covenant is where God says loudly and clearly to you and to me, Christian, I can be trusted. 